Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Before I start today's chapter, I'd just like to make you aware of a couple of things that I've done with the website. Please go to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com. The website's been revamped with a new theme, new styles, new font and some new pictures. Please go and have a look. Also, on the front page you'll see a green button which says Become a Patron. This podcast is, and will will forever remain, free. However, any donations are very, very gratefully received. If you click on this button, you'll go to a crowdfunding page where you can donate a monthly amount. The amount can be anything from $1 upwards. Anyone who does donate via this method will be entitled to receive a copy of my three e-books, The Myths of Ancient Greece, The History of Ancient Greece, and The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights. They will come in .pdf format. So, if you do donate donate via this method, then send me an email with your username, then I can check that it's there on the crowdfunding site, and I will email you the three e-books. So, please go to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com and become a patron. Thank you. And so, welcome again to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome, Chapter 135, Oh no, not again. In the spring of 1143, John Comnenus was looking forward to a final assault on Antioch so he could make the great city a full part of his empire once more. In March he was ready, and he decided to take the opportunity to go on a nice little hunting expedition to prepare himself for the campaign. A great time was had by all as John and his friends hunted. The only minor problem was that the emperor was slightly wounded in the hand by an arrow. John ignored the wound, expecting it to heal up quickly. It didn't. In fact, it didn't heal at all. After a few days, the wound became infected and blood poisoning set in. It was soon clear that the infection was getting worse and the emperor was dying. John Comnenus was a brave and honest man and he realised he needed to prepare himself and his empire for his death. He invited people to come and talk to him in his tent. He wanted to make sure there was no unfinished business. After a few days, there was just one piece of unfinished business. It was certain that one of John's two remaining sons would be the next emperor. It was just a case of which one would be chosen. When John spoke, he said they were both fine young men and that either would make a good Basileus. Isaac, though, was sometimes inclined to get angry, whereas Manuel, his youngest son, was calmer. It was Manuel, he said, that he had chosen. He summoned the strength to take the imperial diadem and place it on Manuel's head. John Comnenos, John the Beautiful, lived on for a few more days but on the 8th of April 1143 he died. He was 55 years old and had been emperor for 25 years. No emperor had worked harder or done more for the empire. Perhaps if he had lived on he would would have been able to retake Antioch and maybe more of Syria. As so often though, a great emperor died before his time. Oh no, not again. Manuel knew that the time of succession was a dangerous one for a new emperor, so he took no chances. He sent John Aksuch back to Constantinople to deliver the news of his father's death and announced that Manuel was now in charge. Just to make sure, he had Aksuch arrest his uncle Isaac and his brother, also Isaac, so they couldn't make a bid for the throne. Manuel Comnenus was, though, an honest and sensible man. It took him a while to get back to the capital, especially since his cousin Andronicus, of whom we will hear much more later in our story, took a few friends and wandered off into the desert where they were captured by the Seljuks. Manuel scowled and carried on the march. Andronicus would have to look after himself. When Manuel reached Constantinople, he was crowned, 
His position was now secure, and his brother and uncle were released. Manuel was tall and handsome, quite unlike his father. He was also cultured, loyal, witty, and enjoyed life. He was an excellent soldier, although he was a bit of a dreamer. Like Justinian, he thought big. Although he was brave and bold in battle, he was a little too fond of grand plans to be the great general that his father had been. During the first couple of years of his reign, Manuel captured some of his lost castles from Raymond, Prince of Antioch, and fought some campaigns against the Seljuk Turks, who were back in control of the eastern part of Anatolia. He also married Bertha, a German princess and sister-in-law of the Western Emperor Conrad. The two men then formed an alliance against Roger of Sicily, and soon became great friends. By 1146, though, things had changed, and Manuel had a lot more to worry about than he'd bargained for. In 1144, the Muslim lord of Mosul and Aleppo had captured the crusader city of Edessa, and within a couple of years, his son, Nur al-Din, had conquered the whole of the crusader county. The news of the capture of the city was greeted with horror by the Franks in France, and so in December 1145, Pope Eugenius III issued an appeal to the Christian leaders to take up arms and head to the Holy Land. The Second Crusade had been launched. A monk named Bernard of Clairvaux, who we now know as Saint Bernard, travelled around Europe gathering support. So the Empire was about to have to put up with a whole army of Western troops travelling through its lands, almost certainly causing trouble, stealing and murdering. Oh dear, oh no, not again. This time it was not just the nobles of Europe who set off for the Holy Land. Nope, this time the kings of Europe were in charge. Louis VII of France, accompanied by his formidable wife Eleanor of Aquitaine, began the journey to Constantinople. The English king, Stephen, was a bit too busy with a civil war, so he sent some nobles. Conrad III, the German Western Emperor, although he called himself King of the Romans, set off for Constantinople accompanied by his nephew and heir, Frederick of Swabia. This young man will play a part in the Second Crusade, but will be far more involved 40 years later in the Third. Frederick earned the name Flaming Redbeard because of his impressive facial hair. Today, we know him by the Italian translation of his nickname, Frederick Barbarossa. Conrad and Frederick swore an oath to Manuel that they would not behave badly towards the Emperor and his empire. Conrad was generally able to stick to his oath, but Frederick was not as responsible. He hadn't wanted to swear the oath in the first place. The army pillaged the countryside, which forced Manuel to send his army to escort them through. Even so, when a German nobleman was murdered outside a monastery near Adrianople, Frederick had the monastery torched and killed all the monks. When the Germans arrived outside Constantinople there was a lot of tension. When the French arrived there was even more tension, as the French and Germans really didn't get on. Manuel was in a bit of a pickle. He was at war with the Turks and there were two large, quite unfriendly European armies parked outside his capital. He had to balance his dealings with the enemy with careful management of two large aggressive armies. This would have been too much for most men, and the Empire was in trouble. Oh no, not again. Manuel, though, was every bit as good a diplomat as his grandfather, and he handled the whole thing beautifully. First, he made a truce with the Turks. Next, he greeted the leaders of the Crusades as honoured guests, and gave them good advice about the route to take through Anatolia. Then, he made up a great story about there being a large Turkish army being formed in Anatolia, and the Franks and Germans would need to hurry to defeat it. Then he had the whole lot of them shipped over the Bosphorus, and like Alexius, sighed with relief. Glad as he was to see the back of them, as he watched the Crusaders disappear over the calm seas, he feared for them. He knew that this army of Westerners was not strong enough, disciplined enough, or clever enough to defeat the Turks. The Second Crusade, he feared, would be a complete disaster.
the Second Crusade was a complete disaster. Manuel had told the Crusaders to travel to Edessa by marching along the coast. It was a safer route, completely in imperial territory, and there would be no threat from the Turks. The German army ignored him completely and marched directly over Anatolia, where they soon reached the town of Dorylaeum, the scene of the great victory in the First Crusade. The Turks had been tracking them though, and the Seljuk army attacked and massacred the Crusaders. It is said that nine-tenths of the crusading army was killed. Conrad, Frederick and a few other survivors made it back to Nicaea. The remaining German soldiers joined up with the Franks. The crusading army, now made up of Germans and Franks, took the safer route which the Emperor had originally advised. When they got to Ephesus though, Conrad became very ill. Manuel learned of the illness and sent a ship to bring Conrad back to Constantinople, where the Emperor personally nursed him back to health. It was during this time that they became friends. By April, Conrad was back with the Crusaders. After losing many men to Turkish raids, they finally reached Antioch in the spring of 1148, where they learned that the Emperor had concluded a truce with the Turks back in 1147. Louis of France was furious and blamed Manuel for all the bad things that had happened so far. This was completely unfair, but having someone else to blame for a catastrophe can be quite handy, and Louis denounced Manuel as the enemy of the crusade. The real cause of the complete disaster to come was the decision to attack Damascus. The Muslim leaders of Damascus were frightened of Nur al-Din and were on friendly terms with the crusader states. There were some local lords who fancied taking some of the rich fertile land from the Damascenes, and the crusaders couldn't quite cope with having a Muslim emir as an ally so they besieged Damascus, attacking an emir who only wanted peace. Emir Unur had no choice, and he pleaded with Nur al-Din for aid. The lord of Mosul and Aleppo was only too happy to oblige, and he marched on the city. The crusaders, it seems, were now scared of even mentioning the name of Nur al-Din, so they turned round and retreated back to Galilee. The Muslims were delighted. Most of the crusaders went home. Conrad sailed to Thessalonica, and Louis VII stayed behind in Jerusalem to do a bit of praying. Both Frederick Barbarossa and Louis VII blamed Manuel Comnenus for the disaster that was the Second Crusade. It wasn't the Emperor's fault, of course, but then it's always handy having someone to blame when you've made all the mistakes, and Louis tried to get the Christian world to launch a crusade against Constantinople. So, we have a bitter crusader who thinks any defeat in the East has nothing to do with him and is all the fault of the Basileus in Constantinople. Not only that, he's sworn revenge. Oh no, not again. Louis VII, though, never had any chance to attack the Empire. His wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, was very unhappy with him about many things, including the Second Crusade. In 1152, she managed to get her marriage annulled and soon married Henry of Anjou, taking all her lands with her. Henry was to become Henry II of England, and Eleanor was to give birth to another of the leaders of the Third Crusade. His name was Richard, and we know him as Richard the Lionheart. But anyway, back to the Empire. Conrad arrived in the Empire to a hero's welcome and great hospitality. Manuel entertained his friends for many months and persuaded him to reform their alliance against Roger of Sicily. He then sailed to Corfu and retook the island from the Sicilians. By 1152, Manuel had defeated uprisings by the Serbs and the Hungarians. He had persuaded the Venetians to ally with him and Conrad against Roger of Sicily and they were in the process of planning a great campaign. Even the Pope, scared at the strength of the Sicilian Normans, was on their side. 
At last, it seemed, the empire was to make its western provinces stable and maybe regain a bit of lost territory in Italy. Everything looked rosy. And then Conrad III went and died. Manuel was genuinely saddened by the death of his friend, but it was also very inconvenient. Frederick Barbarossa, who succeeded to the western throne, had no love at all for Manuel Comnenus or the empire in general. He said that Manuel could help him fight the Normans of Sicily if he wanted, but there was no chance of him getting any land out of it. Then, Pope Eugenius died as well. Frederick Barbarossa was later crowned Holy Roman Emperor by Pope Adrian IV, and the alliance completely fell apart. Barbarossa marched back to Germany. Luckily for Manuel, in 1154 the Norman threat disappeared. Roger of Sicily also died, and his son, known as William the Bad, was too lazy and fun-loving to carry on the war. Even better than this, the barons of Apulia were in revolt against William, so Manuel took his chance and sent his generals John Ducas and Michael Paleologus to help the rebels. He managed to reform his alliance with the Pope, this time with Adrian. Before long, Bari was back in imperial hands, along with a number of other Greek-speaking cities in southern Italy. By 1156, Manuel was in control of nearly as much of, it as, of Italy as Basil the Bulgar Slayer had been 150 years earlier. William the Bad, though, was finally stirred into action and sent a fleet to attack the Imperial Navy at Brindisi. The Norman army marched over the hill soon afterwards and the Imperial forces were utterly defeated. John Ducas was taken prisoner and William took his revenge on Bari. Like Aquileia and Palmyra before it, the old city was completely destroyed. Never again would the Empire try to take and regain territory in Italy. While all this was going on, Manuel had to deal with a rebellion from within his own family. He had appointed his cousin Andronicus as commander of the province of Brantishevo and Nish. Andronicus contacted King Geyser of Hungary and entered into a plot. While Manuel was out hunting, they planned to strike against him, but the plot was discovered just in time. Andronicus was captured and imprisoned. The Hungarians seized Brantishevo and Manuel had to personally lead an army to take it back. The bat battle was bloody and horrible, but Manuel won and the Hungarians accepted a peace treaty. Andronicus escaped from prison through a secret tunnel, but was soon recaptured at Nicaea and thrown into a darker, nastier dungeon. So, an emperor trying his best to rule the empire while finding himself constantly under threat from enemies outside the empire is finding himself threatened by conspiracies from inside his empire. Oh no, not again. Manuel Comnenus sat back and had a big think. There was clearly no way he was going to get back any land in Italy, and it seemed that Frederick Barbarossa was more powerful and more dangerous than William the Bad. Adrian IV had already made a treaty with him, and Manuel thought he'd better do the same. He dispatched Alexius Axuch, son of John Axuch, to try and stir up more rebellion against William, and at the same time made contact with the Norman king and see what may be the terms for peace. Alexius succeeded in both of his missions and William the Bad, rather suspiciously, agreed to a sensible peace treaty and returned all of the imperial prisoners. By the time he had achieved peace with Sicily, Manuel Comnenus had been on the throne of the empire for 15 years. It had been a very busy 15 years and the emperor probably needed a rest. Sadly though, he didn't get one. In 1156, Reynald of Châtillon, the new prince of Antioch, had attacked the island of Cyprus along with some other Frankish supporters. Most of the treasure on the island was carried back to Antioch. Manuel marched on the city, defeating most of Reynald's allies on the way. Reynald was panic-stricken. 
Reports that he had received told him that the Imperial Army was huge. There was only one thing for it, and Reynolds did the one thing. He completely surrendered and appeared outside the Emperor's camp, dressed in sackcloth, ready to plead with him. Manuel was in no hurry to meet Reynolds and kept him waiting for a few days. Eventually he allowed them to approach, barefoot and without hats. Reynolds and his party were allowed to enter the Emperor's enormous tent where they saw him sitting on a huge throne. He gestured towards them dismissively. Reynolds was forced to lie in the dirt at the Emperor's feet. Manuel ignored him for a considerable amount of time and Reynolds shuddered with fear, wondering what was going to happen. Eventually he spoke. Reynolds would be allowed to live on three conditions. He had to give the citadel in Antioch to Manuel, he had to supply troops for the Imperial Army, and he had to get rid of the Catholic Patriarch of the city and install an Orthodox one. Reynolds agreed gratefully. Soon Baldwin, King of Jerusalem, arrived for discussion with Manuel. The two men got on very well, and agreed that Manuel would march into Antioch, and then they would all march against Nur al-Din. A few days later, the Emperor en- entered the ancient city. Even Baldwin marched in the procession after the Emperor. It was clear that Antioch was in imperial hands once more, even if Manuel had to accept that it would still be run by a Frankish prince. Manuel Comnenus loved a good party, and the celebrations lasted eight days. The festivities included a jousting tournament, something which was common in the West but unheard of in the Empire. Baldwin broke his arm in the tournament, and Manuel, who seemed to be a pretty good doctor, successfully treated the injury. On his way back to Constantinople, an envoy from Nur al-Din met the Imperial Party and offered Manuel a truce, even saying he'd launch a couple of attacks on the Seljuk Turks for him. Manuel agreed and went home. The Franks, of course, were furious. The Emperor had marched an enormous army across the desert and then marched them back again without taking on the Saracens at all. What on earth was the point of that? Manuel, of course, was proved right when the Seljuks threatened again. He used his alliance with Nur al-Din to attack the Seljuk army. A contingent of Danishmans and some Pechenegs joined in and the Seljuk sultan, Kilij il Arslan gave up the struggle. He gave back all of the imperial cities that had recently been captured and agreed to respect the border between his sultanate and the empire. Manuel Comnenus had spent nearly 20 years at war with, or in diplomatic conversations with, his friends and enemies. Unfortunately, during this time, he'd not had chance to think about the succession, and in 1159, his wife died without them having any sons. By 1161, Manuel knew he needed to get married again in order to produce an heir, and he married Maria of Antioch, daughter of the late Count Raymond of Tripoli. In 1167, they would have a son, Alexius, who would succeed his father. Unfortunately, as we will see, Alexius was still a boy when he came to the throne, As we know, when a child becomes emperor, it is often the case that all hell breaks loose and the empire descends into chaos. It will be no different this time. Oh no, not again. Next time, we will find out what the cause of the chaos was. Until then, have a good couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.